Welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, where the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne, who is off this week. My topic on this episode is sourdough, and our guest is the amazing baker, Guy Frankel. Before we get to the discussion, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers, Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., and supporters Michael W. and Dutch Girl. And special thanks this week for a generous contribution from Bradley and Stacy. Thank you so much. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. And now back to the topic of this show. The audio-only format of podcasting doesn't do justice to Guy's visually stunning breads. While you're listening to this podcast, you may want to check out the pictures of Guy's breads in Instagram and Facebook. Guy is at core Brad, that's spelled C-E-O-R. And now my conversation with Guy Frankel. So where, where are we exactly? So we're in my um, baking studio, which is a converted sunroom in the backyard, um, where I have all my baking stuff. And you're, the family kicked you out to, to, for the sake of cleanliness of the kitchen? Is this what I understand? Yes. I used to bake in the kitchen, and my wife kicked me out, and now I'm uh, here in the backyard making a mess. And once a week, she comes out and says, dude, seriously, and... I clean up in here, too. You came on a clean day. How did you first get into bread baking? What was the uh, attraction to it? So it was gradual. I mean, I, I'm a ma- I, I like hobbies. <laughs> and being a writer-director in Hollywood, you get a lot of uh, off time. And so my first, my first serious hobby was cooking. And then it was followed by gardening. And as part of the bake, of the cooking, baking was always there. I would bake a variety of things. I would be quite experimental, you know, for a novice home chef, whatever, home, home cooker. And, but, but it wasn't its own thing. It was just, you know, it was a, th- a thing. Of, it was a part of uh, the cooking. And then I became a farmer. As soon as we moved to Los Angeles and I got a little bit of uh, backyard, I started planting basically stuff that I can eat. And when I do get into hobbies, I, I'm a geek, so I geek out, right? So when I went into farming, I joined uh, the groups and I bought the books and I eventually started making my own fertilizers using a lot of fermentation, uh, Korean natural farming method where you mix eggshells with vinegar and you make the uh, you know calcium water-soluble and all these kinds of tricks. I like to geek out on it. And then I had a period where I did a lot of fishing. <laughs> Ocean fishing? No, uh, sweet water, like lake uh, fishing for uh, trouts or ba- largemouth uh, bass. And but my wife felt like it was uh, I was spending too much time away from home, <laughs> waking up really early, and you know going to the lake. And she's, she's like, "Can you find something to do at home?" And I was like, "You know, I think I'm going to spend some time really getting to the bottom of this baking thing." And so I delved into that. I read all the books. I watched all the videos. You know, I, when people say they were self-taught, I, f- I find it, you know, weird because, I mean, we all read, you know, the books that are full of knowledge and we all watch the videos on YouTube where people share their knowledge. And uh, so I've learned from everybody. If anybody shared a piece of knowledge about bread, including a lot of university articles, I wanted to know about sourdough and the effect of, you know, salt on it or the temperatures or I, I had a lot of questions and I like to read so I did a lot of reading and actually I knew a lot more before my hands before the muscles in my hand understood dough my brain understood all the theory or a lot of the theory that had to do with it there is no all the theory there's so much we don't know about sourdough still and then I started baking like crazy and once I got, I mean, they were always fine, even before, you know, throughout the years when I was baking randomly, it was nice loaves. But then I started getting really into it and making nice loaves and enjoying it. And then I started posting it and getting a lot of very positive feedback. <laughs> I've been doing it for a couple of years, very intensively. Baking every day, pretty much? or 
Yeah, I, I either some days I don't bake, but on those days I will make dough. So uh, I mean, unless there's a crazy day and I'm you know I can't, but I'll try to either bake or mix dough every day. I don't have a mixer. I I'm basically in constant constant contact with the dough almost throughout the day because there's because there's not a lot of mixing there's a lot of uh, going back and doing another fold and checking on it and i usually don't refrigerate them so they're usually in room temperature throughout the process usually 24 hours or longer worth of fermentation in them so you were about to explain to me uh something about uh kind of an unusual technique that uh, when I first heard about you, uh, I think it was Rue who said, you got to check this dude out because he's got something called yeast water, which is, is totally unfamiliar to me. And you're about to show me this very odd looking jar of, of dark fluid here. Uh, you want to explain what yeast water is? Sure. So um, yeast water is a, leavening, a way to leaven bread, which uh, is very popular in Japan and was taught to me by uh, a Japanese baker, Midori. And basically, it's a way to harvest yeast and bacteria from organic materials. So anything edible we can use to extract yeast from. So we use vegetables, we use fruits, peels of fruits. We can use edible flowers like rose petals I really enjoy using, um, lavender f uh, blossoms. I recently, we have a jar here. And so anything that, that grows basically naturally has yeast and bacteria on it. And what we do is we put it in a jar with water and with um, some sort of uh, sugar or honey, which will be food for the yeast and bacteria. And then we let it um, naturally ferment and it grows, becomes um, carbonated. And we make a leaven from it and then we use that to, uh, to make the bread rise, basically. So then you add that to eleven. So you add it to flour and water, and then and then what happens? So I add it. We add it to flour. That would be the liquid instead of the water. And th that liquid is full of yeast and bacteria. And when you mix it with flour, it basically starts eating the flour and doing. It's basically like a sourdough starter, but using a different process to let the yeast and bacteria grow and thrive. So once you add the, the, the yeast water to the flour, how long then before you can make bread with it? Is it something that needs to sit for a few hours? You need to feed it several times? How does that work? So there's variations on the, on the method. And what I like to do is I like to build a first starter and basically proof the water. I mean, they were already fuzzy and I can see that they're very active, but now I want to see how they're going to react with the flour. And so I build a, star a starter and it will be, let's say, 100 milliliter of the yeast water and 100 grams of flour. And I wait for it to double. It can take a few hours. It can be uh, 12 hours. It can be overnight. And once it doubles, I can see what the level of enzyme activity is in it because different fruits will have different enzymes. Uh, some of them will totally destroy the, the dough very quickly. Stuff like uh, kiwi or pineapple, which they use the enzymes to tenderize meat, will also go through the proteins in the dough. Uh, so I can assess the starter. And then I like to do another feed with more of the yeast water and more flour, basically refresh it. And on, after that second build, I feel comfortable. I can assess how you know, the starter will interact with the dough that when I'm making the bread. And at that point, I will make a dough with it. And does the yeast water just live here on the shelf, basically? You need to feed the yeast water constantly? Is it like another culture that needs to be kept fed? So it depends on how you use it. In the beginning, the adventure, or, or you know, part of the adventure is that you're on a continuous journey. Unlike the sourdough starter where you want to maintain it, you can also maintain these, but part of the fun is keep trying out new, you know, fruits or vegetables and combinations of, and then letting it go and starting a new one. It takes about three days for the yeast water to become active, unlike a sourdough starter that will take you 10 days or two weeks before you can bake with it. Here it will take three days, so you can always go back to the same thing if you liked it. And if, like in my case, you get attached to some of them or you make too much and you want to keep it, then absolutely you can basically throw in a few tablespoons of um, sugar and it will keep carbonate, you know, keep fermenting away. 
What have you noticed is the difference between using a yeast water and a regular old sourdough starter that's just flour and water? So first, there's the flavor of the original age of the fruit, or the you know if when I use the rose, one of my favorite is rose petals, and when I build the yeast water from roses. It, the rose petals embark the aroma on the water, and that transfers to the dough, and then in a very subtle but noticeable way into the final product. So I will make rose petal ciabattas. And so you get the flavor of the roses infused in there. And also, it tends to be more yeasty than uh, bacteria. So especially in the beginning, if you maintain, if you keep some of the starter that I was talking about back and feed it, eventually it will become more acidic. But as it starts off, it seems like the yeast have a boost. And so you'll get sometimes a more oven spring, a little bit of a tender crumb. Mm -hmm. Now, I think you were about to show me, you've got a whole bunch of of yeast starters here. What, what We were looking at a yucca one at first, right? Yeah, so this, I went to visit Larry, my friend Larry uh, Kandarian, who's a farmer at the farmer market, and he gave me, oh, you heard that? We heard a pop, right? CO2. Yeah, that was the hiss of wow. me. Uh, oh, yeah, and you can see the bubbles coming up like a beer, and you can hear it. Yeah, it kind of, wow, it's an interesting, almost smells like beer, but it has a so depending on how long you have it going, it will eventually um, become quite alcoholic. The yeast basically converting the sugars into alcohol. There's the sourdough squirrel. He comes to get... There's a squirrel outside the shed here. He comes to get the sourdough discards. He loves them. Literally? Literally. I pour it over there. Listen to this. So that's going to keep... Wow. Yeah, I'm going to use this today... To make a loaf with Larry. Larry has one second. This is again Larry Kandarian. The he's in the Ventura County area, right? Yeah, triticale. It's a hybrid between rye and wheat, and so I'm going to make uh, a loaf with Larry's tr triticale and using Larry's yucca as the leavening. Listen to it as the leavening agent. It says I'm ready. <laughs> All right, I'll show you a few other ones. So, smells. what do we have here? Wow. So, lavender. Totally different. Yeah. Totally different aroma. This was lavender? Lavender blossoms from right there, from the pot. From the backyard here. Lavender and some honey, is that what's in lavender there? Lavender and honey is exactly what's in here, and it's been fermenting for about a week. It's maybe even past ready. We'll put it with some flour and see how it's doing. Yeah, it had a kind of sour smell. Is that a sign it might be past its... Well, it means that the bacteria started working and that it's turning the alcohol from the yeast into vinegar. So we, if you keep going, eventually it will become lavender vinegar. Okay, what else do we have here? This, sometimes I forget. This is wow. Yeah, this has a strong alcoholic smell. Mm -hmm. And it's malted kamut. Oh, sort of like a, almost like a beer then. Look. Um, so, yeah, I basically sprouted kamut, and then some of it I used in bread. Some of it I dehydrated and used as flour. And some of it I threw in with water and a little bit of sugar and made yeast, yeast water with. So that's that. And it's been going for well over a month, so you can smell it's very strong. This one is a habanero. Smell this. Wow. Very powerful. So this is apples, raisins, and figs. I, I saw, I, when I looked this up on the internet, I saw a lot of people using raisins. That seemed to be a, a common yeast water strategy. Yes. Raisins are both very, um, there's a lot of yeast on the raisins. They're very accessible. This is still going. And... Um, I think a lot of people, when they've learned the method, they learn about it through uh, raisin waters. I, when I learned from Midori, Midori was experimenting with anything, banana peels, um, you know, jasmine blossoms, anything she could get her hand on. So I joined uh, the quest 
and um, I wrote a little PDF that explains about the method and put it on our um, Facebook group. And so there's now hundreds of us experimenting with this uh, yeast water all over the world. And, and what's that Facebook group and where can people find that file? So the Facebook group is called Perfect Sourdough. It's the biggest, maybe maybe now the biggest bread group on Facebook and definitely the biggest sourdough group. And it's 30,000 passionate sourdough bakers from all over the world. Some of the world's, I mean, some people that just started baking a week ago and some of the world's top, top bakers. And we're all there basically, you know, posting pictures, sharing knowledge, sharing the joy. People ask questions. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's amazing. And and that actually is how I became familiar with you, was seeing these amazing photographs of your bread. So in addition to the yeast water, what I think of you as, when I think of your bread, is I think of these really colorful interior loaves. You want to say something about some of the ingredients that goes into the bread after you use your yeast water? Um Talk about the ingredients. Sure. Yeah, like the, I mean, there's so much to talk about. There's the, the flour, but also the, the color. I mean, I think yeah. when people see the color your loaves are going to, that's the first question they're going to ask is, how did, how did you do that? Sure. So, I mean, I embark upon many different journeys within, within the bread quest, right? So one of them was learning how to utilize um, colors and sometimes it's colors for the sake of colors sometimes color is the byproduct of um, of you know other goals and other you know that i use ingredients for and basically i use vegetables i use spices i use charcoal i use anything that is organic and edible that will embark a bold color onto the dough i will experiment with and I do it because, I mean, other than when it embarks a strong flavor, like in the case of beet or in the case of um, the basil bread that I make, so it's not just green, but it's a very strong taste, I do it because it's fun, because it's pretty and because it's whimsical and because people seem to derive joy from it, you know. I'm kind of an uptight baker, you know, and one of the things I've really come to respect about you is this sort of ex this joy and this experimentation and this taking this risk taking, um, and that's amazing. You you cut up on the loaves of bread in your videos, and you never know what you're going to see. It's always a surprise. Yes, I, I mean I approach baking less as a baker and more as an artistic outlet. I'm an artist by profession, by education, and in my art, you spend a lot of time waiting for a green light, waiting for people to say, okay, you can now create. And so in bread baking, I found um, an outlet for my artistic um, tendencies, let's put it this way. And so, and I approach it, you know, I, I think of bread making, I mean, I find it very fascinating as an art form. I think of it, I compare it to um, directing films. Because when you direct a movie, you're basically making your best effort to control uncontrollable elements. Which is why they talk about filmmaking as the collaborative arts, right? Because you can't really control the actors. They're not puppets. And you can't control the wind. And you can't control the sound guy. And you can't control... You know, you don't write the music yourself. And so you're trying to exert as much control as you can over uncontrollable elements. And then at the end, you also surrender to the chaos, right? And surrender to the choices that were not made by you, but that you can embrace. And so baking, and especially with sourdough baking, it's, you know, I think I try to think like a sculpture, but, you know, I, I'm sculpturing in chaos. It's alive and it's going into a fire while it's still pliable and expanding. And so you have to foresee forward what's going to happen. You know, how do I score and what's, how is the dough going to react in the oven when I score? And so I love it, right? And I'm on this artistic journey. And bread, unlike most other art, I mean, in a way, it's not really an art, right? Because it's very fleeable and it's, I mean, it's made for eating. I don't keep my breads. I very, very happily cut into them and, and eat them. But for whatever, whatever it is, I think of it as I can embark on the five senses, truly, right? And so I spend a lot of time 
thinking about each one of these elements. What's the sounds that I want the bread to make as you approach it? You know, the crunch of the crust. And, and so I, I don't, I don't want to say master it, but I study it, right? And so I'll embark upon understanding how do I make a very thin crust that will crunch when you cut into it and what color is it going to have. And then I think of the smells that it's going to have. And some of the ingredients I use will really embark a smell, but not so much a taste, you know? And, and I mean, any, any way fresh bread is, you know, the most lovable smell. And then I think of the texture, right? You touch it from the outside and it's got a texture and you put it in your mouth. It's, you know, one of the most intimate places that you can actually experience texture. And so I pay a lot of attention to that. And each one of these goals leads me down a journey of exploration. And I turn to science and I turn to the wisdom of my, uh, you know, elders and and I try to find the tools to achieve my my goals, you know. And then, uh, obviously, the way it looks, I pay a lot of attention to what it looks like, both from the inside and from the outside. I studied um, scoring intensively and trying to trying my best to anticipate what the loaf will do, you know, once I let go of it and surrender it into the oven. And then, right now, I'm on a journey of stencils and. Um, I had the good fortune of having one of the guys that makes the best stencils on the planet take me on a on a little you know exploration and show me some tips and now I've been doing that extensively because that's my way of studying it right I feel like if you pick up a guitar once a week you're not really going to learn how to play the guitar but if you keep repeating it every day and remembering what the little mistakes you made last time and applying, you know, those uh, new understandings on the next bake, you can very quickly uh, acquire a skill. Before I forget, I want to ask you about those stencils, because uh, I think people are going to see that in the pictures and really be curious about how it's how it's done. How, how do you do those elaborate stencils and on a three-dimensional object? That's what I can't quite wrap my head around, those geometric patterns. So... We talked before, you asked me if there's any secrets. Right? That's a secret. It's not really a secret, and I'll talk very loosely about it, but it is one of the skills that were that was shared with me by um, people that you know either go on competitions or teach classes all over the world. And But, but people stencil, everyone stencils, and basically it's um, you, you buy or you find, you can take a fence, use a fence as a stencil, you know, or a leaf. I've seen beautiful uh, breads that just somebody picked up a leaf and placed it on the bread, and then you use flour, and between the flour and no flour, you have a black and white, and you can create patterns. And, you know, somebody asked me today about it, but... How, what do you do? Really, what I do is I pay close attention to make it come out well. You know, I don't overflower, try to make like one or two layers of, <laughs> of flower particles on each spot. And so I take my time because it's, you know, it's like it's my, I, I really enjoy it. So I'm not in a rush to, and I'm not a, you know, I'm not in a bakery and I'm not uh, baking 300 loaves a day. And so I can take my time and, yeah, I enjoy it. Other people seem to enjoy it. So they're they're really beautiful. But there's no real there's no real secret to it. Yeah, it's a dust a, a stencil that's that's the flour is at, before you put it in the oven. Just yeah. With all these experiments, have there been? Because I think breaking can be very pretty frustrating sometimes. Have there been some failures, and how do you work through through that? So um, not only have there been, but I try to fail at least once a week. And a good friend and an amazing baker said to me on a recent visit to his bakery, he said, if you're a sourdough baker and you manage to develop an ego, then you're doing something wrong. You know, because sourdough will humble you. If you're not humbled and if you don't fail, it means that you're, and I'm literally quoting uh, Anomarel. Uh, is the name of the guy, but it's just a beautiful way of expressing it, right? You have to push yourself. You have to try new things. Um, I talk about it sometimes in the post. You know, I talk about tightening. How tight should a loaf be when you shape when you shape it? And I say, um, overdo it. Let it rip. 
You know, if you don't let it rip, you never really know how far the dough will go. So one time, you know, or a couple of times, let a dough rip. It won't be a good, you know, as good a loaf as it could have been. But you're going to learn so much from that failure. So it happens to me quite often. Um, another thing I wanted before we leave the ingredient area is I've, there's a lot of different flours in here. And I also see a mill, too. And I know both of us feel strongly about that. You want to say something about uh, home milling and um, why people might want to consider getting a mill in their kitchen? I do. I feel very strongly about it. Um, I was turned on to home milling. I used to go to Rue at the King's Roost over at Silver Lake and have him mill me some local grains, fresh local grains. And when people ask me about the difference between fresh milled and flour, I say, I ask them if they've ever had fresh ground coffee. Right When you ground uh, coffee beans freshly, the aroma comes out, the oils are there. It's a completely different experience than when you buy the powder from the supermarket. And the other analogy I use is uh, pasta sauce, tomato sauce. You know, I mean, the tomatoes in the can, nothing was done to them. I mean, they were picked at their prime and, and peeled or not peeled and put into a can. And you can use that or you can go to the farmer's market and come back with some fresh organic tomatoes and make your pasta sauce from that. If you understand the difference there, then you can understand the difference between flour and fresh milled grains. And so within maybe a month of baking with, uh, with fresh milled flours, I got my, uh, my own mill and started uh, forging friendships with, uh, with the farmers. Uh, which which I'm, we're very blessed here in LA to have a very strong grain revival movement um, that we're at the center of. Uh, one farmer we've already mentioned twice is Larry Kandarian, and I see a bag of his uh, flowers here. Uh, what kind of what what flowers of his are you working with right now? I see. What do I see? Purple corn. I see. Do I see Yokora Oro too? That's a Joaquin Oro. I'm sorry. Joaquin Oro. So Larry basically is my um, farmer brother. He is the most passionate man you will ever meet, and he grows the craziest grains. So I'll read out some of the grains that he uh, sent me to work with. So we have some organic emifero. I mean, everything's organic. I'm not going to say organic. We have Ethiopian blue tinge farro, and we have his hard red winter wheat and we have his flax seeds, and we have a white wheat called Joaquin Oro, which is gorgeous. And we have his black barley, and we have his purple corn, and we have his triticale, uh, we have some of his kamut, and we have a bag of medley, which I'm totally in love with. Larry planted four varieties of grains, thinking that he will be able to separate them uh, after he harvests because some are supposed to be small and some are round and some are long. But, you know, he says, uh, once I harvested, I realized some of the small ones are big and some of the long ones are short, and so it's a medley. And I started baking with it. It's gorgeous. So, um, I mean, when it was just a medley, I wasn't really interested. Was, once I learned that they all grew together, I was totally in love with it, and so now I'm using it. And do you do much uh, whole grain, I mean, totally whole grain loaves, or are they like a mixture of whole grain and white? What's your kind of uh, thoughts on that? So I'll, I'll do both. I'm not a whole grain uh, fanatic. I'm not religious about it. I enjoy, uh, I mean, it's organic flour. It's good flour, but I'll enjoy white bread flour. Never really 100% white. Uh, a lot of the times 100% fresh milled whole grains. My dad only eats whole grains, so um, I mastered that, uh, you know, for him. And Larry, when I bake with Larry's stuff, I only use Larry's uh, grains at 100% extraction and whole milled because I've been developing recipes for Larry that he's been uh, handing out uh, in the farmer's market with the grains so people can buy the grain and then have a bread recipe that they can use to make the bread at home. And We've been doing that. There's now three or four recipes that have been developing specifically for his grains for this year, because may maybe next year we'll have to change the hydration, for example. Speaking of hydration, do you have any recommendations for people who want to do 100% whole grain baking? What are the things that you need to do differently? Well, yeah, I mean, the main thing would be 
um, the hydration will have to be, usually, typically, will have to be higher. The bran will absorb a lot of water, and so you have to compensate for that. I don't use a mixer, so I let um, time do a lot of the work. I will come back to the dough every half hour or an hour and give it a few uh, either um, stretch and folds or like under tucks kind of um, and work it very gently throughout a couple of hours as opposed to have a very intense mix in the beginning. And I find that that gentle relationship really works well with the whole wheat. Uh, the, the whole wheat dough appreciates, appreciates a gentle hand. And other than that, it will ferment faster. So you have to pay attention in bulk and in, uh, in final proof. But, but really, I mean, to talk in general terms is a bit, conf is a bit uh, you know, it won't do it justice because each one of the grains behaves completely differently. So it's like a trial and error with each one then? Totally. Each once you, when you bake with whole grains that you mill yourself, you have you have to understand that the first few bakes will be you getting to know this grain on this harvest specifically. You you know it's a continuous change. You know as the months will go back, the will go by, the flowers will change from season to season. The same. Uh, I have two crops of yakora that were grown by the same farmers in the same season but on two different plots of land completely different grains so you have to know each grain intimately sorry before you can utilize it and sometimes it's then you know finished by the time you really get to know it but i love that you know i love it and i can never guarantee what a loaf is going to be like i never really bake the same loaf twice it's you know it is what it's going to be uh, now, since mostly beginners are going to be listening to this, um, I was wondering if you had some ideas about good resources for beginners on how to how to master this kind of bread. Because, you know, I mean, speaking for myself, um, I've had some frustrating moments because it's not just a matter of mixing some white flour and throwing some yeast in. There is this trial and error process. And what are, what are some resources that are good for, for beginners for learning how to do this kind of whole grain uh, baking? Specifically for the whole grains? The group I was uh, talking about before, Perfect Sourdough, it's a group that was started, belongs to a woman named Teresa Greenway. And she has online courses, classes on Udami, Udemy, I'm not sure how you pronounce the website. Oh, yeah. right. um, and she, she also has courses on whole wheat. But more than that, the group that she created is just a priceless resource because people are on there that are willing to share their knowledge. And the knowledge is vast and the knowledge is across, you know, across different countries and across all types of flowers. You know, people in other countries have different flowers. And so you get a lot of um, like hive wisdom in the group. And also they will point you to all the right resources. I find that that's, you know, for me, it's a place where I share my knowledge and it's a place where I pick up a lot of knowledge from other people. I've noticed that you can post, because troubleshooting's a, a, a problem with baking, and it's nice that you can post your failed loaves or whatever, and people will chime in and tell you what, what was wrong with them, basically, or how to improve it. Yeah, totally. We have... Um, we have bread geeks, and they will ask the the questions, and they will get they will Sherlock Holmes your loaf, and we'll get to the bottom of it. And you have to be ready to provide a lot of information because there's so many moving parts. You know, when you just say my loaf uh, came out flat, what went wrong? There's very little we can do with it. But if you can say, uh, you know, the starter was active, and I bulked for ten hours at this temperature. And then I proofed for this long, and I felt like the shaping was pretty tight, but then it collapsed. We can, you know, try to help you. And, and if you post a couple of pictures, then we can definitely help you, you know, troubleshoot. And then um, you're a stunning food photographer, too. That's that's a thing I just, I, I look at, and you showed me your studio the last time I was here, and there's no lights or anything. I, I'm sort of blown away by the whole, not just the, the bread, but the photography, too. And I, you were also telling me someone, and I don't know if this is something we can talk about, but uh, the those photographs were seen, and you got flown to Europe for a special conference. Can you say something about that? Oh, yeah. Of course. I would be very happy to talk about it. Um, so regarding the photos, I mean, thank you. 
I went to film school, so I have an intimate relationship with the, with the lens. But, I mean, I showed people ask me a lot about the setup, and I showed it to you. It's funny that you refer to it as the studio. It's the kitchen nook. It's the breakfast nook. It's the south window, which has shutters that I can you know, open and close. And it's a little basket on a little side table and the wall. And then sometimes I will reflect using some, you know, anything like a paper towel or a piece of white cardboard lying around uh, to reflect from the other side if I feel it's really dark. And I use my iPhone. <laughs> so, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I enjoy that part, you know, as well. I mean, uh, I like to take the pretty pictures. I like to find the right angles for the, you know, for the bread and see if the bread can tell a story through the picture. And there's an action shot on Instagram. If you go to your Instagram, right, you just showed me this process of popping open to show the crumb, and then it's in a loop. Is that right? Oh, well, I, I do a lot of videos of when I cut in. I'm usually uh, anticipating to see what the crumb's going to look like, both the structure, the colors. You know, there's always a surprise for me. And so I do overhead shots. And, yeah, what I said, what I mentioned was that if I put it back the way it started uh, on Instagram, it will loop. And there won't be that jump back at the end of the, the video. Uh, so, yeah, I pay attention to details if that's what you're trying to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and then the conference. So, tell me about that conference. What was it about? So um, the conference, what, there's a place, a magical place in Belgium, which is called the Sourdough Library. And I've been a fan of theirs um, for well over a year. There's a guy called Carl uh, de Schmidt, and he flies all over the world. And he collects sourdough samples from the most amazing bakers, and he brings them back to Belgium, and he keeps them alive samples of them and i think they're up to 92 or 93 samples at the moment from all over the world using different methods you know the one from greece was actually using uh, basil yeast water so um, similar to the asian method but it found in greece and i, I watched his videos on youtube uh, love love the guy amazing work and so one day he contacted me on facebook and he said dear guy what would you say if I was to invite you to come visit the sourdough library? Very official. And I was like, is this a trick? I don't think he actually made an offer. What would you say if I was to invite you? I'm trying to check my grammar to see if I can. And so I said, I would say that it would be an honor and a privilege. And so he basically uh, invited me and 12 other bakers from around the world um, most of which have Wikipedia pages, so it's the Teresa, which is which like teaches half the world how to teach how to bake sourdough, and Manfred, who is a, a German baker that lives in Sweden and is the chairman of the judges committee of artisan food contest in Sweden, and the Belgium champion, and just amazing the editor of Bread magazine, an amazing group of people. Um, and he had us come over to the Sourdough Library for a three-day event that marked at the end of which he launched the um, virtual version of the Sourdough Library, which is basically a giant database where everybody can come and register their sourdough and explain about how they build it, how they maintain it, what characteristics it has. And it's accessible to everybody. And so basically you can learn and see how other people around the world. And you can also see pictures of the bread they're baking with it. So I've picked up a few sourdough recipes from there. Uh, wonderful. So that was the launch of that. And basically we spent three days um, eating bread, learning how to taste bread like wine, which is a huge uh, something I'm working on, you know, like learning to use words to describe the smell and the taste of bread. Um, and we did a lot of baking. I got to bake for everybody, and I got to taste some of the other uh, baker's breads. Uh, amazing. It was just uh, just an amazing, amazing experience. Do you know if anyone's done a sort of DNA analysis of all these different sourdough starters to see what sort of cultures are actually active in them? That's something I've always been really curious about. So, Carl, part of the... Um, 
the sourdough library, part of what they do is each one of the samples is, yeah, it's studied in a university lab under a microscope, and each one of the strands is um, registered. And all of these strands, they have, artifi not artificially, but they have isolated, right? But So they keep the... They keep the original, but in theory, they could always reconstruct a very similar cocktail of uh, bacterias and yeast because, uh, yeah, they, they have all the knowledge. Because, of course, if you make beer, you can buy, you know, hundreds of different kinds of yeast, but it doesn't seem like there's anything exactly like that in, in bread yet. Is that kind of where this is going someday or... So it's a part of what I've been exploring very seriously, and I, I wrote um, I wrote an article for the Sourdough Library um, about evaluating different starters because it seems like that for generations people had a sourdough starter and that was their sourdough starter and it works fine, and and that was it, right? Without really any understanding of what's in their sourdough starter specifically or how it would. Uh, compared to another sourdough starter. Maybe somebody else has a better sourdough starter that will work better for their bread, but nobody really stops to to think about that. And so through the work with all the yeast waters and through getting a lot of um, sourdough samples from friends that come by and leave me you know, a little pet to take care of, I started noticing a lot of differences in everything. And uh, the smell of just the sourdough, when you open to feed it, you can smell complete different. And I feed it the same things under the, sh the same ratio, same flowers. But the only difference is the cultures and there's major differences. So I'm guessing that somebody with a commercial interest uh, will start, ca you know, catacolizing the however you say that word, Cate categorizing Yeah, um, right, categorizing it. But uh, that's, uh, we need to wrap up pretty soon, but um, one of the things I've always wondered is, well, if I just start feeding it, I don't know, gold metal flour or whatever, isn't that going to change the culture, or is it still going to have whatever that original culture was? So, I mean, the, the, the full answer is it depends and there's different studies and different theories, and it really depends on the culture itself. I, I think some culture, some sourdoughs are very stable ecosystems, and they live in a very um, tight symbiotic relationships between the yeasts and the bacteria, and they're just happy. They're happy with their pH. They're happy with what each uh, element is eating out of the flower because they like to consume different elements, and they're stable. And when, and when they're stable and when they're fed constantly and they're in the right temperature, they're very resistant to um, attacks from the outside, including the minuscule amount of yeast and bacteria that is on the flower itself. I mean, if, if all there was was just that flower with the yeast and bacteria and you gave it water, within 10 days it will grow to become its own culture. Right, the sourdough starter. But when you just add it to a stable, strong, with millions and millions of uh, yeast and bacteria cells, and you add you add the few thousands, they will probably die off. And if not, they'll you know add another layer of complexity. Speaking of dying off, have you had cultures that just sort of peter out too? Is that a is that a thing? Never without extreme neglect. I mean, when I had. Um, when the fridge went out when I was away and I came back after a month, then I just tossed the sour. You know, I have backups. <laughs> I have I dry them out as powders, and I had some traveling with me, so I just maybe in theory you could dig under, you know, the the crap and find some clean sample, but I wouldn't. I mean, I have too many of them, and it's too easy to generate new ones to worry about an old one. So what's on the, the frontier for you that you can talk about uh, the next uh, the, the moonshot of bread that you're, uh, you're working on right now? Specific loaf? Yeah, specific loaves, concepts. Well, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time developing the recipes for Larry, and I find that very rewarding because, you know, I mean, the fields are just right there up the coast, and, and I'm handed the grain by the farmer, and I get to feed the farmer back, and I just love that relationship. And so, and his grains are a challenge, you know, they're not your modern hard gluten uh, wheat varieties. He's using ancient grains and heritage varieties, and they, 
the taste is just amazing, but each one of them needs close attention. So I spend a lot of time on that. And other than that, I find that these days, I, do, I mean, I don't write anything down. I don't do the same bread twice. And usually when I'm about to bake, I will look down and there's all the grain varieties maybe in the world. I mean, there's just not in the world, but right, like maybe there's 30 options here. And so I'll look down and I'll get inspired and I'll think a little bit and I'll reach and grab a handful and throw it in the in the mill and I won't even know really. I will know when it comes out and I add it, you know, if it's 20% of that or 10%, but whatever will do. It's not a science at that point. The science, I read a lot of science, but when I, you know, when I come to the dough, I'm, I work with my hands and with the feel and less with, uh, yeah, with measurements. So it's sort of like jazz or rock and roll here. Uh, you're, I mean, I'm looking at all these amazing ingredients and you just kind of wing it to start with. Is that? Yeah, yeah. this has, so you, these are the flowers, um, but you know, this will be spelt and, or this will be the white berries and this will be spelt and this will be um, the rye. And then here I have maybe 20 or 30 different types of grains from all over the world. Some of my friends from uh, Sweden, I have Swedish rye and I have Slovenian rye in bags. And so I'll, I'll totally improvise. Totally. And, and, you know, sometimes I'll kick myself if a loaf comes out especially good and I want to repeat it but don't really remember. But, you know. So. And there's a, a container of matcha, too, the uh, green Japanese green tea, I assume as a coloring. Matcha is a coloring. It also embarks a great flavor. I mean, we can talk about some of the coloring agents. You know, I use, um, I use butterfly. What's this deep purple stuff here? This is one of my favorites. This is roasted sweet potato, purple sweet potato. So, well, that smells amazing. I've been on a search for the right purple pota sweet potato. Um, I've tried to bake with, you know, I've seen other bakers use uh, purple potato with great results, and mine didn't really seem to embark color. And on my trip to Belgium, I stopped in Amsterdam, and there was a. Um, a market, a farmer's market, and the, the guy had maybe 15, 20 different kinds of potato and five varieties of purple potatoes. And I asked him, I said, what's up? Some, I'm looking for a purple potato that will embark color. And he said, only this one, when you, bake, when you put it in water, will make the water red. And I looked at it, and it seemed like we finally got one that was similar in our supermarket. So I roasted it, made great bread, but I had way too much of it. So I, roasted, I mashed it, and then I dehydrated it, Oh, in the Excalibur dehydrator over there. Excalibur dehydrator. The mashed, basically mashed sweet potato. And then I milled it. And it embarks the most gorgeous uh, color on the bread. It's amazing. Um, well, I need to wrap up here, but is there, if people want to see your bread, there's a, there's a couple of websites in addition to Perfect Sourdough. Where can they uh, see what you're up to? Well, I mean, I post almost every day on uh, Instagram under Seor Bread. It's C-E-O-R, bread, B-R-E-A-D. Is that the main, uh, the main website? Yeah, that or I'll post. I mean, I'm also under Seor Bread on Facebook, but I'm, I also post almost everything on Perfect Sourdough. And we're trying to get you to teach class here in L.A., but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anything else that you want to uh, talk about that we didn't uh, yeah. cover? Yeah, go ahead. So, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean... One of my, I talked about collaborating with the farmers. Another farmer that I work with is TNA Farm, right? Teresa and Adam that grow the Yakora Rojo. But another part that I've been starting to do and enjoying and I'm actually seeking to do more of, which is why I'll mention it, is collaborating with chefs. So I've I've derived a, I derive a lot of joy of designing custom bread for specific dishes that they envision, you know, so they'll tell me I need a bread to put tuna tartare on and, you know, I'll pitch ideas and sometimes we'll do a test bake. And so I love that kind of, uh, looking to do more of that. I think we've talked about that. It's kind of surprising in this town. There's some pretty fancy restaurants where the bread is not so exciting. And so it sounds like that might be a, a frontier for you, too. I think you've done special events, too. I've seen, if you look back on in your Instagram account, there's some 
you do breads for uh, occasions and there's special designs. It's pretty amazing. Thank you. I did a couple of charity events where larger scale and really I'm trying to hold back. I get I get offers from restaurants now quite often. I was approached by a supermarket. So, I mean, but the whole notion of the bread is to pay very close attention and to use very high-end materials and, and use, you know, um, processes that are elaborate and time-consuming and labor-consuming. So it's a challenge to see how it scales up. And I'm not in a rush, you know, to do that at all. I'm, I more enjoy the one-on-one -on -one collaborations than, than branching out massively at this point. I'll link to this in the show notes, but there's a video of you making a, I think it's a batard or a baguette with a green interior and a red exterior, or they get the, the round way around. But uh, say something about that one. How did you do that? So I really like that loaf. It's a beetroot basil loaf. And basically um, the exterior is a beet, a beet juice bread. And what I do is I'll buy some organic beets, Sometimes not today, but I grow them. I've done a couple of loaves from beets that I grew, and that's the best. But these were um, organic beets, and I juice them in my um, juicer. It's like a slow emancipating juicer, whatever it's called. And I'll use that instead of the liquid for the dough. Mm -hmm. And it embarks the color, but it embarks a very strong beet, delicious beet flavor. The main challenge, and here's a tip and a secret in a way. <laughs> um, <laughs> the main trouble with the beet is that as you go towards the center of the crumb, you lose the color. If you notice beet breads, the exterior is almost much more redder than the beginning. And so what I do is I fill it with a basil dough. And what I do there is I juice basil. It takes a lot of basil, but I'll, I'll run basil through the juicer and get green juice and use that to make a dough, just that instead of water. And I'll make the basil dough. And then in between, I wrap it with uh, roasted uh, pine nuts. I basically uh, borrow from culinary wisdom. You know, I think what goes well with beets, so pine nuts, you know, and so I'll, I'll use, you know, established culinary wisdom in the breads in, in new ways. Well, Guy, I think you've inspired me to throw out my old methods and just, like, experiment because it just it looks so much fun and you're getting such amazing results. Thank you. I, I, one of the things I really enjoy is inspiring other people and seeing, you know, some of the, some of the knowledge that I, I share utilized by other bakers. It's a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to seeing your stuff too. Thank you, Guy. Thank you. That was Guy Frankel. Guy is at Core Bread in Instagram. That's spelled C-E-O-R. He's also Core Bread in Facebook. There are links in the show notes. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.